Good evening, Doxology. For those of you who don't know, don't, don't know me, my name is Leo. I'm a member here, and I'll be doing the scripture reading tonight from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. Feel free to follow along in one of these Bibles. They belong to Christ Church, and they're in the pews in front of you. Uh, just please return them afterwards. We also have blue Bibles in the back. You can keep those. Those would be our gift to you. Again, this is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in a festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. Good evening. It's good to see you guys. I'm Nate Wagner. I'm a pastor at Portico Church Arlington, and thank you for having me. Um, Man, this is an intense passage. Thanks, Steve. Um, You guys have been in Hebrews for a while, I understand, and it is a wonderful book. Um, It really is. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible. It makes sense of so much. It helps you understand the Old Testament, um, and it helps you understand who Jesus is. Um, But it does take a little bit of work sometimes because it seems a little bit distant to us, especially if you didn't grow up in a Jewish home. Um, It's really weird, and we're not super familiar with some of the language. So we're going to do our best to kind of push into it this evening. Um, But first, I, I think you guys are probably tired right? Like that is one of the most common descriptions when I ask somebody like, how are you doing? And they're real. It's not just like the before church. Oh yeah, fine, fine. It's like, no, when, when they are actually real with me, people will say I'm tired, right? And there's this kind of like soul fatigue that a lot of people are feeling. Um, and it's, I think a product of a lot of things. It's a product of where we live. It's a product of kind of a long lingering pandemic that's been going on for a long time, tension in the culture and in the world around us. Um, But it produces this fatigue. And this is something that the author of Hebrews, who's basically a pastor, who's kind of giving a sermon, it's a sermon that's turned into a letter. 
he was really concerned about this um, phenomenon of soul fatigue, of fatigue that impacts you spiritually. And it comes from a couple places. And for the author of Hebrews, he sees it as an internal kind of pressure that is wearing on you and external pressure that's also wearing on them. So one of these external pressures to the audience that he's writing to is the fact that these are people who were Jewish and then became Christians at some point. And now think about this. This has social ramifications for these people. They're in tight-knit Hebrew communities. They're in Hebrew families. And so now there is kind of like this Messiah who claims to have fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures, who is crucified, resurrected, and then ascends. And you have these little communities of mostly, for the most part, at the very beginning of Jewish Christians. And they're brand new to the faith. They're trying to figure things out. And at first, you could imagine that being really exciting. And the power of the finished work of Christ is very kind of like motivating. But then five years go by, ten years go by. Pressure that takes the form of persecution starts happening. Your family starts kind of showing up at your door and saying, hey, the Christian thing's not working out. Come back. Don't you understand? Like, he's gone. The Messiah that you say brought you into the kingdom is no longer here. And so there's this huge pull back into the old covenant that these Jewish Christians are fighting constantly. And so this is where our text kind of picks up, and it's towards the end of this letter. And he's been kind of reminding and encouraging them to persevere, to keep going. Don't give up. Keep going. Rely on each other. Do it with one another. And he's saying, keep going in discipline, right? So you guys have kind of been into chapter 12 for a little bit. He describes the Christian life as a race. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Keep going. And then he says the way that you run the race is through the Lord's discipline. It's through being convicted of sin, confessing, repenting, continuing to hold on to the promises of God. Don't give up. Just last week, talking about Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Letting go of the eternal and embracing the temporal. And so he's kind of grounding that, in, that instruction, that urge to keep going, that exhortation in this climactic picture of where they aren't, where they are, and then where they can stay. Where they aren't, where they are, where they can stay. And so let's, let's look at this for a little bit. But before we kind of dive in, um, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, yeah, Lord, we feel this. <laughs> we feel tired. We feel the pressure. 
And Lord, we can really understand what it must have been like for these, for these early Christians, for these communities of faith who are trying to live out the faith in a hostile world, in a world that is constantly pushing and pressuring them. And not only the world, Lord, but their own hearts, their own hearts who are questioning the wisdom of grace, questioning the wisdom of a, of a Savior who requires everything. And so, God, I ask that you would encourage us, that we would hear from you as you speak to us tonight, and that very clearly we would listen to the blood of Christ that calls to us, that is encouraging us to finish this race. God, I ask that you would help this church do this with one another, that this is not something that we do in isolation, but that we actually do this with each other. And so, Lord, help this church with your spirit to encourage one another, one another in this race. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we need to listen to the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus calls us into a new covenant, and it calls us out of something old. So it's a place where we aren't any longer. And that's where he starts. For you have not come to what can be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words from the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So this is a description that the author is giving them, reminding this community about the old covenant, right? This is a picture of what happens in Sinai. When after the Israelites were taken out of Egypt, he brings them to the mountain and he takes Moses up to the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments, to give him the covenant. And Moses is identified as the mediator of the covenant. And he is encouraging and exhorting the Hebrews to not go back to this old place. He's like, you have not been called here. This is old. This is Sinai. And then he gives this pretty horrific description of it, right? It's something that can't be touched. There's distance. God gives a command that none of the Israelites should gum go up to the mountain, not even a beast should approach the mountain, because God is dwelling and descending onto the mountain. His holiness, his presence is there, but they can't be there. Only Moses can go up. It's a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, a tempest. These are kind of twists on the imagery that is in Exodus describing the presence of God on this mountain. And it's a gloomy twist on it. He's doing this for effect. He's saying, don't you remember what happened when God's presence descended on that mountain? Don't you remember what your ancestors did? They wanted nothing to do with it. He said, don't speak anymore, Moses. We can't take any more of what God has told you. God gave them the law. He gave them the Ten Commandments. He gave them the ceremonial code that they were to follow in the wilderness. 
and they couldn't bear it. They couldn't even bear to look at Moses after he was in touch with God's glory and reflected it to them. They asked for kind of mercy that he would stay away from them. Moses was just a man. He wasn't mediating God's holiness to these sinful people. While Moses was up on the mountain, do you guys remember what the Israelites did? They got a little, like, antsy. They're like, hmm, Moses has been up there for a long time. We're just here. What should we do, Aaron? And so they made a golden calf, right? What was the purpose of the golden calf? It was to control. It was to bring God down. It's like, okay, God's on the mountain, but we actually want God over here, a version of God that we can control. And so when Moses returns as the mediator of this covenant, he demands, who's, who's on the Lord's side? And a bunch of the sons of Levi come and says, okay, here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to be commissioned into the service of God. You're going to go kill your brothers, and your sons. And they slaughtered a bunch of the Israelites' family because of the sin of the people. So this was how they were brought into this old covenant, right? And so when we hear this, we're like, hmm, why would they want to go back there? It's pretty gruesome, pretty rough, There's not a whole lot of grace that's evident there. But you know how it is. How many of you guys had your parents tell you, like, hey, student loans are not a great idea. Trust me. Like, hmm, okay, that was for you. But I'm going to do things my way, right? Like, this is now the same descendants of these very people who the author is trying to get not to go back to that old covenant. Not to go back there. But something in our hearts, something in their hearts, wanted a God that they could control. They wanted a God, a salvation that they could accomplish. Right? And so now you're, we're mixing in the pressures of an external world of a family who wants to pull you back into these cultic practices of the Jewish faith and your own desires for a God that you can control, a salvation you can accomplish. Because let's face it, it's hard trusting in someone else. It's unnerving. You're letting go of control. You're trusting that Jesus will save you. especially in this region. There's a lot of people who like to control things. And so I know that this is hard for us. We want to be able to have some participation in our own salvation. And that's what this was offering. That's what the law offers. That's what the old covenant offers at first, at first glance. So he says, this is a sound of a trumpet, a voice whose words from the here, 
words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so this is a description of what happens when you have a holy God invade space and time. If you have any imperfection come into contact with that holy God, they're destroyed. Not only that, but God even tells Moses, don't even let another hand touch that person who's now dead. Because the holiness of God will also destroy that person. And so there was a distance, there was space created between God and the people. And even Moses, the mediator, trembled with fear. The author of Hebrews says, you have not come here. Don't go back there. Don't go back there. Verse 22, this disjunctive word, but. One of the most beautiful words in Scripture, if you pay attention to it. But you have come to Mount Zion. So you have not come to Mount Sion, Mount Sinai. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now listen to this. Look at how he describes Mount Zion. Innumerable angels in festal gathering. The assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. To the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Pause there. Notice the difference here. He's saying, at Mount Sinai... You were not brought here, but here's what's there. And it's this impersonal, distant, terrifying description. Mount Zion? It's a description of people. Of angels. Of light. Of proximity to God. God is there. The firstborn, the assembly of the firstborn are there. And then, to top it all, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So let's, let's push into this a little bit for a second. You have come to Mount Zion. What's that tense? Any English nerds here? No? It's present perfect. You have come. Do you guys know that's where you're at right now? You are experiencing Mount Zion with one another. You are in the assembly of the firstborn enrolled in heaven. You're in the presence of God in this church together. The new covenant the place where you have been called to, it looks like this room. Instead of a trumpet, you get to hear Steve. (laughs) Instead of gloom and darkness, you get to hug each other, to encourage each other, to cry with one another. 
Instead of Moses, who turns the sword on the people for their sin, you get Jesus, who's mediating the covenant. How much better is that? Think about the signs of the covenant and what they imply about the, how the old covenant was mediated versus how the new covenant is. You have circumcision, violent, bloody, painful. And then you have baptism. A washing, a waking up, symbolically coming into the church. How much better is this new covenant that's mediated by Jesus? Jesus mediates this covenant with the sprinkling of his blood. And this is where we have to listen to the blood of Jesus. He brings this to a conclusion here in so many ways. The whole letter kind of culminates here, right? Long ago, verse 1 of chapter 1, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, even Moses. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That is the blood that cries out. And it cries out with a word that is better than the blood of Abel. So the blood of Abel, spilled by his brother Cain, called out for justice. It called out for retribution. It called out for punishment to come down onto Cain. That's a righteous call. But it's one that none of us can bear. It's the blood that is mediating that old covenant, calling for justice, calling for punishment to come down on our sin. But it's Jesus' blood that is sprinkled. And that blood speaks a better word. It speaks, it speaks the word of the Passover. It speaks the word of God passing over the sins of the people. But it's not thanks to the blood of a lamb anymore. It's thanks to the blood of Jesus. The eternal son of God. His blood spilled, calling out to you. And this is why you keep going. This is how you keep going, is you listen to the message of that blood. Do not let go of the eternal for the earthly, for the temporal. Listen to that blood. Verse 25, he keeps going. He presses this home. He says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So he's urging the people to listen, right? There is kind of um, an expectation. This isn't just a message you can hear and then have a neutral response to. It requires your response, And if you don't respond to it, that is a response, and you will not escape from it. This is an offer from the eternal God to you. 
God the Father holding out his son, sacrificed for you, saying, trust in him, receive him, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. And the author of Hebrews is saying, do not refuse that offer. You will not escape. They didn't escape the offer of the old covenant, which he doesn't look too favorably on. How much more will we not escape the offer of the new covenant? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only earth, the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. This is the judgment of God. It's the judgment of God that is promised, and it's even foreshadowed by Sinai. It's foreshadowed by that old covenant, and it shakes the mountain. It shakes the earth. And what the author is saying here is that that was just a foreshadowing of the final judgment, of the final shaking. And this time, everything's going to shake, heaven and earth. And the purpose is redemptive. The purpose is to remove everything that is not eternal. You have not come to what may be touched, to what is shaken, but you have, t- you have come to Mount Zion, what is eternal, what will not be shaken. And that is your inheritance. That's what you've received. What's calling you back? What is it that's putting pressure on you? What in this culture is pressuring you to let go of the gospel? To let go of trusting Christ? Is it coworkers? Do you feel pressure from people based on kind of like the cultural friction that exists between Christianity and the kind of secularized religion that we are constantly kind of discipled by and put pressure on by? Maybe it's your own heart. Maybe you are just really uncomfortable with completely letting go and placing yourself at the mercy of Jesus completely. Maybe you're having trouble with kind of wanting that way to earn your salvation. The author of Hebrews is showing you that to do that, to let go of that, to give into that temptation, whatever it might be, you're going back to a house that's not a home. Throughout the book of Hebrews, he's describing the Old Testament as a shadow. It's kind of like a blueprint of this heavenly reality, right? It's a blueprint of what exists in heaven. And that's why it was so glorious. That's why it was powerful. That's why it was wonderful. But it was a blueprint. And this whole letter long, he's been telling them, you don't have the blueprint anymore. You have the reality. Jesus is the reality come down from heaven. 
to go back there is like to set out the blueprints of a house and sleep on the road on the blueprints when you have the house right there. It doesn't make any sense. But that's exactly what we do. That's what we're tempted to do. And it's not just this Hebrew audience, it's us. We are tempted to go back because the offense of the cross sometimes is hard. It's like, oh, my soul cost the eternal Son of God his blood. It's like, yes, but he gave it out of love. He gave it because he desired to be in fellowship with you. He gave it because he wants to see verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. When you listen to the blood of Christ, when you listen to the message that it preaches to you, when we listen to that message, God as a consuming fire is no longer terrifying, but it's actually relieving. He will consume all of our sinful desires. And we can be certain that we'll pass through the fires of the judgment because the blood of Christ has passed through it for us. See, Jesus wasn't just crucified and his blood sprinkled, but then he shows us our destiny by resurrecting and ascending. He gives us that certainty that our inheritance is unshakable. It's permanent. It's eternal. And so we can actually look forward to God returning as a consuming fire. That gives us comfort, not fear. Because it's going to usher in the fullness of what we're experiencing right now. That we have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Listen to that blood. Receive it. Do not leave here without receiving that. Do not leave here without going again to your Savior and placing yourself at his mercy completely. Let go of whatever it is that is pulling you away from him. It will be consumed by the fires of judgment. But the saints in this room, the angelic host feasting, that's eternal. You're going to rest there. So keep going. Endure. Push through. And look at the rest of this chapter, or the rest of this book, as basically the way to come to God and offer acceptable worship to him. He's going to give instructions to you as a church on how to do that. So while you are hoping and longing for the full reality of Mount Zion, take it seriously. Do this. And don't let anything pull you out of it. 
It's worth it. Keep going. Let's pray. Hmm. Heavenly Father, this is... Um, <laughs> it's such a wonderful, wonderful message. Um, it seems way too weighty for us to even fully comprehend this evening for me to comprehend. And so, God, I ask that you would... Um, that you would help us, that you would work this truth into our souls, that we would know what it means to have the blood of Christ call to us, call us by name, and to show us the wonders that await for us. God, help us to experience these right now. Help us to see this assembly of your people as a present experience of this heavenly reality as you have visited this people with your spirit lord help them to enjoy that help them to cherish it and let's spend the rest of this evening worshiping you with reverence and awe pray all this in jesus name amen